The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, welcome everyone. So if you haven't been coming the last few weeks, we've spent um, some of September and early October looking at some of the nuts and bolts of our sitting meditation practice, and in particular, I've talked uh, recently about the anchor, right? And that it's kind of interesting. So an anchor is a meditation object that we direct the attention back to over and over again. And it's useful because without an anchor, the mind's just going to do what it's in the habit of doing, right? And the big habit for human beings is to be lost in thought. Somewhere along the evolutionary path, humans develop this capacity for language, and with language we can construct meaning, and with some of the meaning the mind constructs, the mind is quite literally dazzled by the meaning, right? Isn't that true? I mean, isn't it true that we can think some thoughts that may cause rapture to arise, like uh, we feel tingly, like, oh, that's so beautiful, but it's just a thought in the mind. Or we can think thoughts that really scare us, that we actually get frightened. We can like remember even a scary movie, which of course is just thought, mental image. Even though, of course, the movie has visual, you know, and auditory, but all that then gets converted to thought, because the movie's not happening now, and it's impactful or any kind of scary experience from the past. So we, the mind, the thinking mind, can dazzle itself. And there's that story that I tell from time to time about the you know, wish-fulfilling tree that sort of paints this picture about somebody walking along on a hot day thinking, oh, it'd be nice to have a big shade tree to rest under. And the person rounds the bend, and sure enough, there's the big shade tree. The person relaxes under the tree, enjoying themselves, and then wonders, be so nice to have somebody under the tree with me to hang out with, to be with. Sure enough, an interesting, attractive person shows up. They're having a good time under the tree together. person thinks, be nice to have some food and drink to share, to have together under this shady tree with this new friend of mine. And sure enough, food and drink appears. And by this time, the person's getting a little suspicious. I wonder, maybe, perhaps, there's a demon in the tree. Sure enough, a demon appears in the tree. I wonder if this is a person-eating demon. Sure enough, it's a person-eating demon. And so ends the story. (laughs) And it's a, I'm sure you get it, it's a metaphor, or simile rather, for our mind. We have this very amazing production studio in the mind. That's mostly what that part of the mind is. It, it constructs, it abstracts. But the problem, you know, when humans started to have this capacity to abstract what's going on, to paint an internal picture about what's going on, you know, it's like a lot of things that come along the way, there are problems. Like when we got off of all fours and started walking on two, you know, we didn't realize that, yeah, we could do it, but we're going to have backaches for a long time. 
until sort of evolution continues and we sort of have the structure that makes, you know, being upright make sense with a creature that for, you know, who knows how many millions, billions, I'm not sure, years was walking on all four. And it's the same thing with, you know, that capacity of language to construct meaning, which really allows civilization and communication and all kinds of storytelling and what binds us together. You know, there's all this study, I don't know, it's been a while since I've read some of the major books, but that have really tried to understand the origins of civilization. What was it that allowed humans to get organized? You know, because for a long, long time, comparatively much longer, we were just groups of people bound together generally by genetic pool, right? clans of people, small clans of people. We knew each other really well, so we trusted each other. But they were relatively limited how big these groups were. But at some point, you know, I'm not sure of the history, but around 10,000 years ago, give or take, something big happened. And part of what happened, they think, you know, some of the people, as I understand the, the research and the study, is that partly because of the development of the brain, but, but also just like, uh, like what had been around for a while, but knowing how to use story, how to use religious stories, stories of meaning, right? Then it allowed humans to transcend the bounds of clan because instead of having shared genetic material, we had shared story. And even if we didn't look alike, you know, or whatever reason, but if we had a shared story, then we could work together. We could see somebody, and, you know, there would be certain symbols, you know, the way they dress, the way they carry themselves, or whatever it is, their language. But some cultural trappings, you know, like these days, depending on your politics, you know, if you're a Republican and you see somebody walking down the street and they have one of those red, Make America Great hats again, right? It's sort of like that tribalism, like, oh, I, I get that person. They could be have a different ethnic background or they could be a different gender or whatever it might be. But if we see certain symbols, there's a very interesting book called uh, Whistling Vivaldi. I don't know. Anybody read that book? Oh, it's an interesting book. You've got to read it. I think this person may be one of the deans of NYU, New York University in New York City. But anyway, way back when, this person, um, African-American man, was a grad student at University of Chicago. Some of you know it's uh, it's a south side of Chicago. And so the surrounding neighborhoods, you know, uh, there's a lot of poverty. And uh, then, of course, there's this sort of well-known, prestigious university there, University of Chicago. So it has some affluence around the university, even though the wider neighborhood is not so affluent. And so, <clears throat> being an African-American man, he describes in the early part of this book, you know, uh, certain people would see him and, you know, get tight, which is not uncommon in our culture. And he just sort of stumbled upon this thing. He, you know, I, I think he, I forget exactly, it's been a while since I've read it, but I don't know if he liked classical music or not, but somehow he stumbled upon, like, if he's whistling Vivaldi or some kind of classical tune, right, because that's a symbol. 
Or maybe, you know, if you had a public radio t-shirt or something like that, you know, it would be sort of creating a symbol like, I'm safe. I'm not one of the bad ones or something like that. You know how it works in our society. And so this is this uh, thing about, the, the, the point I'm making is how dependent we are on these abstractions, these symbols, right? the stories we tell about making ourselves safe. And so our orientation is to keep looking for stories that make us make safe. And we get really afraid when we don't have a story. I'll give you another story from my life, a little bit of an embarrassing story. Some of you have heard this before. But this is, again, a long time ago in the mid-90s, and Kamgan was uh, not too far away. And my wife and I had a little tiny, tiny apartment in the building storefront where Kamgan was. And uh, in the middle of the night, it's like 2 or 3 in the morning, boom, 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 loud banging on the door. They didn't use the doorbell. Very strange. Of course, we were both asleep. I woke up, and I had one of those minds that likes to know what's happening. And I couldn't figure out like what that could possibly be. And my mind started racing, trying to figure out what was going on, like have some meaning, some conceptual meaning about what this could be. But it couldn't. And, but I was, the mind was so desperate to grasp on to some meaning the only, it's so funny, the only thing it could grasp onto was to tell my wife to not panic. Right? I mean, it's so funny. You'd, I don't know if you get how funny that was in that moment. Here I was panicking, right, because I didn't have ground. I didn't have meaning that worked, that made sense. But finally I found it was feeble, but it was something. Be the guy who tells his wife not to panic. I mean, it turns out it was the police. Someone was breaking into our car. But, uh, but the interesting thing was seeing, because I had some reflective awareness, not enough, but some, and certainly in hindsight, to kind of really get what was going on. Oh, that's the mind. That's an expression of the mind's dependence on meaning and the raw fear when the mind doesn't have meaning, doesn't have the ground that meaning apparently, seemingly, supplies. But it's always shifting fragile ground because whenever my mind takes a stance with any kind of meaning or you take a stance with any kind of meaning, immediately we have to defend, the mind has to defend itself from other points of view because they're a threat for the, to the ground I'm standing on, this opinion, this view, this way of understanding, this way of being, whatever the construction is about. So our practice, like when we use a meditative anchor, we're sitting, we're sitting still, right? And we're training our mind, the attention to come back to the experience, the immediate experience of sitting, not the mental image of sitting, not the conceptual idea of me sitting in meditation, but the direct moment-to-moment movement of sensation, feeling the breath as a movement of sensation, feeling the tingling in the body as a, or the throbbing as a sensation, or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what sensation the mind is knowing. But by being training and in being intimate with the sensations, then the mind 
can't orient, can't depend on the meaning, right? Because it can't do two things at once. So to whatever degree the mind is learning to connect and sustain with the anchor, it breaks that with the meaning and the habit to get attached, to become dependent on the meaning. And you could do a little experiment right now because this is not abstract, right? It's happening right now. So just with a, a little bit longer of a pause, you might even notice a little self-consciousness or a little even tiny panic, like, what am I supposed to do? What's happening? Right? Like, oh, Mark's just pausing to kind of make a point. Oh, okay. And we got our ground again. Right? But until we had that ground, there's, there can be a little uneasiness. It's really interesting. I mean, even people you know well, if there's just a pause in the give and take of the conversation, can really throw the mind for a loop. Because the mind doesn't know what to do with it. Or sometimes like you're watching a movie, you know, streaming a movie, and then there's a little glitch in the Wi-Fi, and you're there with a couple friends, you know, and then there's just like... And it's like how quick the mind wants to sort of fill in the space. So in meditation, whether we're using the body as an anchor or the breath as an anchor or hearing as an anchor or a whole, you know, one different object of experience after another, right? What we call open awareness practice, where we're not returning to the same object over and over again, like the body sitting, sensations of the body sitting, but some moments it's hearing and feeling the sensations of the body or noticing their thoughts or but we're <clears throat> specifically, like when the mind is thinking, and it's often thinking, even when we're with the breath or with the body, the thoughts are often there in the periphery, right? You notice that? That's a good sign if you notice that there are thoughts happening even when we have relatively good concentration with our primary object like the breath or the body. Because it helps the mind understand or the, helps wisdom understand that It's not the thoughts themselves, that movement of mental activity themselves, that's the problem. It's the dependence. It's taking or being identified, trying to get something from the thoughts. What are we trying to get from our thoughts? Meaning, which is just AKA ground, you know, safety. I know what's going on because I'm telling myself what's going on. And that makes the sense of me feel stable or safe because I've got a story, right? Got a story that makes sense. So in the next several weeks, maybe six weeks or so, until Thanksgiving or so, we're going to be, I'll be talking when I, I guess I'll be here almost all Sunday nights during that period through through December. Um, Talking a lot about how to relate to thinking. It's such a central part of meditation practice because it's such a predominant, common object that the knowing mind knows. And it's often the object the knowing mind knows for a moment and then, in a sense, becomes absorbed so that the mind is thinking but no longer aware 
the thinking is happening. Right? That's most of the time, isn't it? We're in thought, thinking's happening, but there's no part of the mind that's aware that thinking is happening. There's no wisdom or, or spacious knowing that knows, oh yeah, that's just thoughts coming and going in the mind. Usually when thinking is happening, the mind misunderstands the content of the thoughts, imagines that the content of the thought is more than what it is. So like when I say, I identify as a male, right? So when I say something like that to myself, what's the difference between identifying with them the meaning of those words and the mind understanding that's just a thought. I'm a male. I identify as a male. So a thought is one thing and clinging to the meaning is another experience. The wisdom knowing that that's just a thought being known is one thing. It's kind of like when something's upset you and you have some anger, some irritation, and the mind isn't completely caught up in it yet. And the wisdom in the mind goes, oh yeah, I'm irritated. It's just this irritation. I don't need to hit back. You know, I don't need to say something to the person that irritated me because it's just irritation. I'm not taking it very personally. It's just this charge, just this tendency to want to say something. But there's wisdom that understands that that emotional charge and that mental content is just what it is. Because there are definitely times, otherwise we'd be in jail, where we see thoughts, but we're not confused by them. Right? Because we have some pretty, you know, inappropriate inclinations, thoughts at times, don't we? But we don't just act on them as if it's true. Like, We know that's just a crazy thought. Like luckily, right, that we see that. So the practice is more and more having that wise space so that even when a wise thought or, you know, whatever, a believable thought is there, wisdom still knows that's, even if it's true in some sort of sense, you know, consensual reality sense, like, we're at Common Ground Meditation Center on the corner of 27th Avenue and 26th Street. Right? That's sort of a part of our consensual reality that actually is the corner we're on, according to the maps. So we can know that that thought isn't ridiculous and still not get lost or be confused by that thought. Like, that's just a thought that arose in my mind. I'm at Kamagam Meditation Center. Because that thought, like, you know, that thought then, like, oh yeah, this visual experience is that thought. But no, no. The visual experience is what it is. There's nothing about the visual experiencing people and the colors of the room and the cushions and the floor there's nothing about this visual experience that's Kamagam Meditation Center. Because Kamagam Meditation Center is a concept, it's a thought. And this is seeing, and the hearing is hearing, right? So that the, 
this is you, you get a sense of how, no, 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 all of this is that thought. See, we're trying to make the concept more than what it is. Same thing like when I say me or Mark. That's a concept. It's a thought. And I don't have to be confused by the label. Because the label, you know, it's sort of like putting a label on this dynamic of seeing and hearing, you know, what we call Common Ground Meditation Center. It's okay to put a label on it, Common Ground Meditation Center, but we don't have to be confused by the label. The label isn't this activity that happens in the space where there's seeing and there's hearing and there's sensations and there's emotion and there's thought. But all that together, when it looks, feels, is a certain way, then we, call, we, we kind of consensually agree, let's call that Common Ground Meditation Center on Sunday evening. And we all go, yeah. But the label is just a label, it's just a thought, not much of anything. Or here's another one that we use sometime at the center, like you just make something up, like uh, a yellow wheelbarrow, right? You know, can you picture that? Think the thought, yellow wheelbarrow, picture it. And then just repeat the image or the thought a couple times in your mind. And now while you keep thinking, you know, repeated, repeatedly thinking yellow wheelbarrow, just examine what that is in and of itself. What is that as a thought, as a mental activity, yellow wheelbarrow? As a phenomena in the present moment. See, it's not much of anything, is it? A thought is such an ephemeral event. Even a thought like, we're all going to die. You know, there may be a charge hearing that thought, but the thought, like, can you see the thought independent of the tendency of the mind to attribute a lot to that thought? So we need to learn, uh, like part of our practice is, uh, you could consider it a kind of deconstruction. You know, there's seeing and there's hearing and there's touching and there's smelling and tasting. And then there's this category of experience we call mental activity or thinking. And emotion has sort of both visceral, physical component and the cognitive component, right? So it's sort of a bridge between the body and the mind, emotion. But it, it's really just both. You know, there's a visceral and a mental part to emotion. And that's it. It's just those six things. The mental activity, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and hearing, being known. And then when we realize, when we deconstruct it in this way, okay, that's just mental activity being known. That's just auditory experience being known, visual experience being known, smell and taste being known, and touches being known. It's not like magical. There's nothing weird about this deconstruction. It's actually what is happening or how it is, right? For No one would argue against that. And the interesting thing, you know, when we use a meditation anchor specifically or just generally doing mindfulness, Buddhist awareness practice, where we're trying to see things in and of themselves, 
bodily activities being known, mental activities being known, the five senses being known, mental activity being known, just this stuff happening. All this stuff is always in motion. Thoughts, emotions, always moving, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting. It doesn't become a thing ever. It's always like a river of happening, the scene. The scene doesn't like freeze up. I mean, even when we're looking at one thing, you know, it's still a changing dynamic. You can kind of see that if you really relax with your gaze. Certainly it's true with hearing, sensations. Even if you have a very specific painful sensation in your knee, let's say, when you really relax and get interested in what awareness of physical sensation is, it, it's best described as a movement, as a flow of sensation. One sensation after another. Now, it might be a relatively constant flow, but you'll really sense the changing nature. Certainly that's true with thought, right? It's not like you have a thought yellow wheelbarrow and then it's like there. It's just before it's even there fully, it's on the way out, right? Thoughts don't last long at all unless it's repeated, but then it's another thought of yellow wheelbarrow, not the previous thought of yellow wheelbarrow. On and on and on like that. This kind of train of association one thought leading to the next, one sound, and then the followed by the next. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, we're not going to get rid of thought. We don't need to get rid of thought. Thought is a really powerful tool, this capacity of our mind to abstract reality. So reality, in a Buddhist sense, or some combination or one of these six things being known. That's what we call dhamma or dharma. You hear, hear that word a lot, especially the word dharma. Dhamma is the same word, but one is in the Sanskrit language. That's dharma. But the earlier teachings from the Buddhist tradition were recorded in a related language called Pali. In Pali, it's dhamma. So it's a little different. So this tradition of Buddhism comes, it's that early Buddhist tradition, and where insight meditation, vipassana meditation comes out of, so we use <coughs> more often dhamma than dharma. So, but that word dhamma or dharma just means the way it is. So it just means like, oh yeah, this is being known. But it not in a kind of a conceptual package like Kamagam Meditation Center is being known, because it isn't Kamagam Meditation being known. No, there's seeing being known, there's hearing being known, there's touches being known, there's the thought, Kamagawa meditation, as a thought being known. Right? So it's just like boom, 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 boom. Things are being known. What things? Well, you can divide it up six ways, or you could just say bodily activity or mental activity is being known. Moment by moment by moment. And one moment of knowing whatever the mind knows conditions the next moment. So it feels like there's some coherence to the knowing, right? And part of that coherence is because we keep putting, we call this in Buddhism, perception, right? I perceive, but that's like putting a label. So another word for perception is recognizing what's happening. But the way I recognize, like if I see Greta over there, I recognize her, and immediately I have that label, Greta. And that sort of label stands for this innumerable wealth of experience I've had with that person. 
right? And then plus the current, whatever I'm seeing and sensing from visual or if she was speaking, you know, all that would be, and then, but that's just Greta. And see, with that label and the content, the latent tendencies that come up with that label, I feel a little bit in control of the wild situation of having this whatever in the room, in the space with me, because I've got all this meaning. Just like if someone walked in the room and I put a label on, I don't know who that person is and they look scary to me, or something like that. Well, that also is a perception. That also is a label. And that will evoke a different response, like maybe wanting some distance. Calling 911 or whatever it might be. So this is the interesting thing when we're sitting and we're using something like the body, dhamma, the way it is, thoughts are just thoughts, sensations are just sensations, breathing in is like this, breathing out is like this, hearing is being known, just hearing. We're really in this so-called elemental, seeing dhamma, seeing the way it is, being in the moment, and then meaning comes into the mind. This is boring. right? And it's like, it's so compelling because of the habit energy or, oh my God, I've got to do this tomorrow. What should I do? What should I say to this person? So some think from your to-do list comes in. This is boring. Oh, what am I going to do here? So whatever it is, some cognitive thing arises in the mind. This is what happens. This is the main distraction in sitting practice, right? Because then if wisdom isn't strong in that moment, because of the force of habit, the mind will feel like I got to deal with the meaning that just arose in my mind. Like that I'm bored. Or they should have shut their cell phone off. You know, what's the story? Or whatever it might be. So there's some meaning invades the mind, but there isn't enough wisdom to realize that whatever that meaning is, whatever that little snippet of a story is, conceptual story is, is just that. It's just like a story. Oh yeah, there is this problem that needs to be resolved, and there is this emotional feeling that I'm feeling that somehow seems associated with that picture or that cognitive story. So there's a cognitive story and there's this feeling of anxiety and then there's this knowing that it's being known. Knowing that wisdom knows that seeing that mental image or thinking that thought, that conceptual meaning is that. That's just that being known. And the anxiety is just that being known. And then if it sort of re-emerges because it has some momentum, no, 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 I really do need it. Then we do it again. Okay, that's just that thought being known. That's just that feeling being felt. And wisdom knows this. Now what, what will happen if we do that? What happens when we do that? I mean, it's a real affront to how the mind is normally operating in the world, which is, it has a different allegiance, which is meaning uh, Meaning gets the sort of, gets the attention. And the mind, in a sense, absorbs, gets lost in the meaning. It loses its sense of 
space or its wise perspective. And wise perspective in terms of our training is bodily activities being known, mental activities being known. It's just this dance of body and mind being known right now. And that's always true. Every single moment of our life is just this is being known. It's like this now. It's such a, isn't that a sobering sort of practice for us? This is being known. It's like this. Even if it's like a really sublime experience. Okay. This really sublime experience is being known. No, no, but I finally understand what the hell is going on. Okay. And that's just an experience being known. You know, this bodily, it has, it's, it's an experience that has some bodily components and some mental components, conceptual components, and it's being known here and now. No, no, but I feel like I should get on the rooftop and scream. Okay, and that's that experience being known. And you see this approach to seeing things in terms of dharma, dhamma, the way it is. I said it was sobering, but it can also feel like, you know, oh, you're taking all the fun out of it. You're taking all the juice out of life. Well, maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, <clears throat> I, think it's th- I think what the Buddha might say if someone made a comment like that is, well, why don't you check it out and see what happens? Why don't you cultivate that simple, ongoing, present moment awareness where you're seeing things in this way? So basically breaking the spell where the thinking mind and the meaning the thinking mind constructs has sort of taken this preeminence in the mind so much so that the mind feels quite unsafe without being in allegiance, without being identified or lost in the projections of our production studio. Right? We have this amazing mind that can visualize and imagine, construct very, I mean, let's admit it, we can't really tell the difference between our mental imaginings and reality. That's why, you know, when I imagine food I like, I start to salivate. Or if you imagine somebody you're attracted to, you can become sexually aroused. Or if you imagine some danger, some terrible thing that happened to you where maybe you were beat up or you were abused, you can freeze up in a way that people do when they're being abused. Because our production studio, our imaginings are very potent. And so we have to we have to be really dedicated to not be like we've got this amazing tool and we have to be very dedicated to not being confused by it. It's just like kids, you know, you don't give kids certain tools because they're not going to know what to do with it. They're going to get in trouble. So you first you make sure like to train the person, like, okay, you want this? It's like driver ed, you know? First you watch some videos. The first thing they do with people with driver ed, I think they still do this, you know, they show them video of people having terrible accidents. Do people remember that? It's like, this is not to be played with. This is not a toy, <laughs> you know? And so, one, and then you get their attention. You get the fifteen-year-old's attention. Then, and then you start talking about, you know, how to drive, and and eventually, 
they get behind the wheel of the car and they get some guided practice, you know, and then they take a test. And so, you know, we're careful. But we don't do that about imagining things. You know, and it's like kids these days, especially, they have at their disposal all kinds of tools that reinforce their capacity for imagining, you know, all the screens and all the sort of games and other movies and, you know, books too. Same thing, kind of worlds. Remember those worlds we got lost in when we were younger? You know, it was just, it was just so much, for some of us, more palatable or interesting or safe to be in our worlds that we constructed than in the sort of grounded present moment reality with our brothers and sisters or the imperfect parents that we had or the imperfect world we grew up in, imperfect schools, imperfect adults and friends that we had, right? Where things were more chaotic, right? We weren't in control of our school, but we could be somewhat in control of our fantasies. So it's no wonder that in one way or another, we spend a lot of time in our thoughts about things. Except that, here's the kicker, when we're in our thoughts about things, when we're lost in thought, identified with thought, attached to our mental constructions, then we're disconnected from life, literally, unaware of the present moment. Because we can't be both intimate with the present moment, aware, awake, and be lost in thought. And when we're lost in thought, then, on some level, there's a sense of being disconnected. It's like, you know how it is when we're reading even a really good book or watching a really good movie, there's some sense, most of the time, that it isn't real. But we want it to be real. Even, do you notice that with your dreams, like when you get woken up out of a dream, and even though you know you were dreaming, you want to go back. You know that feeling? Even if it wasn't a particularly pleasant dream, the mind feels so compelled. It's so... Um, where basically the mind is a sucker for meaning. Give me coherent meaning and I'll give you my life. I'll, I'll let go of everything, right? And what we're, in a way, the mind is most afraid of is chaos. Is sort of uncertainty and things being undefined or ambiguous, right? We don't like that, do we? So our coherent dreams and stories and opinions and, you know, the mental constructions that we have, the ideas we have about all the people who surround us and all the politicians and, you know, it makes us feel safe and on the other hand, it makes us feel disconnected and numb because we're disconnected and flat because on some level, probably mostly unconsciously, we don't realize what we're doing. We don't realize sort of the deal with the devil that we've made. So over the next month or so, couple months, we'll really become good students of thinking, what it is, what it isn't, what it does, And like any good, uh, or at least any addict trying to be good, we're going to really study the addiction. 
like, do I need to be thinking about this now? Is it possible to not think this? Because this is the neat thing we discover when we use a, an anchor. And remember, an anchor isn't just when you're sitting and you return to the breath. It could be like, let's just play with it. Like you're walking 100 meters from your car to your office or wherever. And you say, well, I'm just going to experiment and just like be in the body as I walk from here to there. And then you realize how hard it is not to get lost in thought. Everything you see, you want to tell yourself a story about. Like, that person's an idiot. Oh, that person's interesting, you know. Look at the mess in that car. You know, it's just like, and then once the mind opens a door, like says something like, oh, look at the mess in that car, then we just start telling a whole story about, constructing a whole story about who the person is that owns this car, you know, by what we see in there. You know, is it gym equipment? Is it wrappers from McDonald's? You know, what is it? And then, you know, and then we just sort of fill out the whole equation. We get a whole story. And then we have an opinion about if I met that person. And then we might even sort of like, in the produce section, is that the person who, you know, it's like start connecting the dots. And this is what's wrong with this country. Or this is what's right with this country. Or whatever. I should move away. I'm so glad I moved here. It just goes on and on. And this is that, train of associations, the mind hops. And then when it gets really bored with whatever train it's on, right? there's that sort of awkward like, oh no, I'm getting kind of in the vicinity of no meaning. And it just like puts the production studio on steroids and we come up with something to think about, something to worry about, something to plan, something to fantasize about. And we're off to the races for a while until the mind starts... Because after a while, whatever thread we're following is a little weak or uninteresting or stressful to keep it going. And then we hop ship from one train of association. But there's always something about whatever the mind was doing that conditions wherever the mind goes. So even if it seems like out of the box, it's never out of the box, which is why being lost in thought feels so dead. Because... It's never ultimately that interesting. We can't really get to fresh new territory when we're in the world of our thoughts, our mental constructions, because it can only be riffs on stuff we've already thought, feelings or riffs on things we've already felt. It's only the present moment that's alive and wild. It's one of the real characteristics of the present moment, being in the present moment, is it feels alive. Even though when I say something like, you know, breathing in is like this, or breathing out is like this, or hearing, it just sounds so boring because the thought of being aware of the breath, the thought of that is boring. But being in the present moment isn't boring. It's quite alive because it's undefined. It isn't a concept. The Buddha once said, you know, no matter how we conceive it, the present moment, the way it is, Dhamma, it's never, no matter how we conceive it, no matter how sophisticated the concept is, no matter how elaborate or beautiful, refined the concept is, it's never it. It's the same thing. It's The joke is like, no matter how good the graphic artist did in making the menu, it's not the same as eating the food. 
It could be an amazing menu, so descriptive. Hired the best writer in the country, best photographer. No, no, holographic menu, you know, with little, you know, uh, electronic devices that spray some scent, you know. And we're watching this sort of hologram of someone eating it and just, but it's not the same as the experience. And this is the thing that, like the limitations of cognitive activity, where we really want to understand it as a tool, but we've gotten lost into it, the constructions of the mind being synonymous with a sense of self. And that's the real problem. That we've, we're, the mind is almost constantly misunderstanding the conceptual, conceptualizing activity of the mind. What started off as a very useful tool has kind of taken over this body-mind activity, this thing we call me. And so part of what <coughs> Buddhist meditation practice is about, and just not just formal sitting practice, but all day long practice, awareness practice is about, is bringing the system back into balance. And a lot of that is understanding thinking is just thinking. But don't pathologize thoughts. Train your mind to really connect and be intimate with ordinary aspects of experience. But you have to overcome the thought that tells you this is stupid. This is boring. And then you look at that thought and you realize that's just a thought. It's just a thought. And then if you're aware of the sensations of breathing in and aware, and the thing is you start to feel what it feels like to be a human being. You might feel a lot of physical pain. You might notice a lot of unpleasant emotions like anxiety or numbness, feeling dead to the world, that feeling like I don't care, but as a sort of bodily emotion. You might feel all kinds of stuff, but it's real. That's the thing. It feels good to be real, just like it feels good to be you know, in the weather. Like if you've been inside for a long time and you go outside, even if it's like bad weather, it's like there's something real about it as opposed to being in your room lit with neon lights, with your screen, you know, and then to kind of go and see clouds and feel air and be outside. So it's something like that to come into the present moment out of our dream, out of our mental constructions, and realize, oh, it's just a thought. I don't know what the heck it is, this present moment, but it's real. It's here and now. It's something being known. And it's like we have this choice. Every moment I could get lost in my definition, my conceptualizing of what this is, or I could stay in the unknown present moment the undefined, the ambiguous, the wildness of the present moment. Can we live there? What kind of human being do we become when we live in that place? And it doesn't mean we can't conceptualize. It just means we're not confused by it. So we still have the great tool of the thinking mind, the conceptualizing mind, that we pull out all the time and use it and then put it aside. It doesn't sort of rule our life, basically. We have a few minutes, about six minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a couple folks. Some thoughts you have.
it's always nice to hear from people who don't share that often, just an encouragement not to be afraid to share your practice with a larger group or to ask questions about what comes to mind. So who would like to, yeah, please start us off. Thank you. My name is Pam. So the more I practice, um, the more I find the present moment to be really not that scary. It's almost more comforting than getting lost in my past thoughts that I can't do anything about anyway, or worrying about the future, which I really can't do anything about anyway. And when I think about it and bring myself back, it's almost more comforting to stay present than it is to get lost in my thoughts. Yeah, that and that's because you've been doing your practice, right? Because we're cultivating a taste for the present moment. And the Buddha says it has one taste, the taste of liberation, the taste of not being oppressed by our thoughts, lost in thought, right? So it does have that taste, but we have to get used to it. It's only the transition that's problematic. And, uh, and then when life changes and you're in a really challenging place in your life, then you might not want to be in the present moment. And it would be very interesting to, s- to see like, okay, I can't be here, but what moment can I be in? Because sometimes we really can't handle a particular moment, but we have some power to change what we can be aware of. So remember, being in the present moment doesn't mean you have to look at the most painful thing in the present moment. Sometimes the skillful thing is to know this really hurts and I'm not really feeling stable enough to look or open to this. So I'm going to pay attention to this other thing that's also in the present moment. Because there are some options about what we're aware of. Yeah, thanks Pam for sharing with us. Who'd like to go next? Thoughts or questions that come to mind from the talk tonight? I'm Michelle. I have some random thoughts, um, and I appreciate you guys indulging me. One was when you were talking about how we went from clans to not. There's a great book called Guns, Germs, and Steel, and they're talking about our ability to grow things like wheat and create tools from metal, and that was another thing that made us tolerant of bigger groups and added to a lot of what you're talking about. My other random thought is just that if I'm understanding what you're saying, to me it's sometimes I'm not aware what my brain is doing and it might have me run out of the burning house, which is wise, right? But I might not be aware. And sometimes I might assign meaning like I'm a terrestrial being and if I spend too much time in the water, eventually that's not good for me. Or I'm aware that I'm assigning meaning. I'm aware of the thoughts. It's really just mindful awareness or not. Yeah, because... it or not. No, you're absolutely right. Some of these stories we have short-circuit the mind having to figure it out in real time because one of those stories might fit the scenario well enough and it saves the mind time to construct sort of a story about what to do. And you can just take that cassette tape out those of you who remember what they are, you know, and put it in, and it's like... Like when they were banging on the door, your brain did what it needed to do at the moment. It may or may not have been wise, but it right. did what it needed to. But wouldn't have it have been better to know... Yes, to be aware. I'm panicking. Then I could have practiced not being confused by the panicking, right? And then I wouldn't have had to dump on my wife, right? I could have said... Honey, not that honey, but this honey. Honey, you don't need to panic. 
You know, I know you're panicking. I see it. You don't have to panic about panicking. It's okay that you're panicking. And by the way, you don't have to panic. Because whatever, if it's a monster that's going to eat you up, panicking isn't going to help. Right. And, and that, that automatic thought may or may not, may not have been wise, but what you wanted to do is be aware that you had a brain that was thinking, and that gives you space right. to be wise or not. Right. And part of what we're learning to be wise about initially is how dependent our mind is on meaning. Like we're an addict, so we should know that we're an addict. It really helps. And that doesn't mean judging ourselves. It just means my mind is addicted to knowing what is what. And, and part of acknowledging that I'm addict, an addict is being open that there is this space called non-addiction. I may not know what that space is, right? But I know it's not glomming on to meaning. I don't know what that is, but it's not this. So that's useful. It's sort of like being on the spiritual path doesn't mean we know what enlightenment or awakening is, but we know what mental suffering is, right? We know what being tight is, so it's not that. Right? It's the release. That's, that's what Nibbana means. I don't know if people know this, but Nibbana doesn't, isn't like heaven. Nibbana means cessation. It's the cessation of grasping. It's the not this, not being tight. That's what that word means. It's like, it actually was a common word at the time of the Buddha, meaning a fire going out. The cessation of the fire. Right? So the fire of greed, anger, and delusion. The fire of being tight, being anxious, going out. The cessation of that. That's interesting. So it's 8.30, we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds to take one or two breaths together. Always a good practice to let go of the words. Trusting the stillness, the peace. Thanks everyone for being here tonight. It's always nice to come together and practice and reflect on these teachings from the Buddha. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.